Our sermon today is taken from James chapter 1, verses 19 to 27. This is the word of God. Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness, and receive with meekness an implanted word which is able to save your souls. But be doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who intently at his natural face in, his, uh, in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no longer who forgets but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not brittle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God and Father, and the Father, is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction, and to keep oneself unstained from the world. This is the word of God. Amen. Thanks, Wilson. Friends, if you have been with us for the past few weeks, then you know we have ended our series through the life of Moses, which is the book of Exodus, and we're now in our second week into our new series, which is going through the the book of James. And as Sam mentioned last week, the book of James, or rather the, the letter of James, is a letter in the New Testament written by James to the church of his day. Now, usually letters in the New Testament, they're written to a specific church to address the specific issues that church has. For example, Galatians, written to the church in Galatia, addressing the unique issues that was happening to them at that time. First, uh, first and Corinthians, they're written to the church in Corinth, and they're addressing the specific issues of that particular church. But the, the letter of James is not written to a particular one local church. It's actually written to the big C church in general. You see that in chapter 1, to the dispersion. Okay, so if it were to be written to us today, this letter would not just be written to CCC to address the problems that CCC has. This letter would be written to all of the churches in Indonesia, addressing the problem that we all have. Okay, so what's the problem that the Big C Church had back then? Well, it's the problem of division and infighting. We saw this in chapter 1. James addresses the rich and the poor. Why? Because there is tension between the two there in the church. Later in chapter 2, James warns uh, the church about showing partiality. Don't do that. Chapter 3, James warns the church about jealousy within the church. Chapter 4, James warns the church about fighting and quarreling that happens in the church. And finally, chapter 5, James warns the financially wealthy people in the church to not be bougie. You know what that means? To be bougie is to be you're too fancy, you know, so that you're robbing people who aren't uh, financially wealthy from fellowship with you that, that you both, that God wants for you both to have. Church division, church infighting, this is one of the biggest causes and, and, uh, of the trials and hardships that, that we saw last week in chapter 1. Although the trials and hardships include other things, this is a big, a big part of it, okay? Whether that's infighting between one church and another church, or infighting between one member of a church with another member in the same local church. By the way, don't you see how relevant this is to us today? If, if you go to the streets right now, and you ask the normal, everyday Jakartan Christian, or non-Christian, just ask them, hey, what do you think is the biggest problem in the church today? What do you think they'll say? Most of them will say, 
It's the division that happens in the church, the infighting that we experience, right? It's very relevant for us today. But a quick side note, don't, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that every kind of infighting is wrong. There are certain cases where it's good and right for us to speak up about particular wrongs that are done in the church. Many cases, you know this, even if it rocks the boat, it's okay. Speak up about it. Cases like financial fraud, right? Spiritual abuse, sexual abuse, speak up. Or really, 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 really bad theological heresies. It's okay to speak up on on some issues that you need to speak up about. It's righteous to do so. But there are divisions, there are infighting that are birthed not out of righteous necessity, but out of our own sinful anger, pride, and bitterness. This is what James is addressing. Okay, so let's continue. Why is there a bunch of unnecessary infighting in the church? James tells us here it's because the church is filled with a bunch of people who don't practice what they preach. That's what he says in verses 22 to 25. We read it, right? The church is filled with a bunch of people who merely hear the word, but don't actually do the word. In other words, James is saying the church is filled with a bunch of hypocrites. Now, don't be mad at me, okay? This is James rebuking us, not me rebuking you. So email him, not me. James is saying that's the cause of, of, of trials and division in the church. We often hear the word, but we don't do it, okay? So what's the remedy that James has for us here today? Three things I want to point out from the passage. Rigorous self-introspection and reflective Bible adoration kills hypocritical religion. Rigorous self-introspection and reflective Bible adoration kills hypocritical religion. First point, rigorous self-introspection. Let's start at verse 19 to 20. Know this, James says, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Okay, we read that and we think at face value, what James is saying here is that he's saying, don't be angry, right? Not quite true. James didn't say don't be angry. He said what? Be slow to anger. But but what does that mean to be slow to anger? Because if you think about it, when you go from the feeling of non-anger to the feeling of anger, the transition there happens pretty quickly, doesn't it? Just just take a second and try to remember the last time you were angry, okay? The initial appearance of the feeling, it's like waking up, wasn't it? At once you were in a state of sleepness and then you were in a state of awakeness, okay? Now, sure, it may take time for you to wake up slowly after you've woken up, but the transition itself from being in a state of sleep to a state of awake, that happened in a split second. Emotions are kind of like that too, whether it's anger, anxiety, insecurity. Those emotions may gradually grow over time, but the transition itself from not feeling those emotions to then all of a sudden feeling those emotions, that happens very quickly, very swiftly, okay? So being slow to anger here doesn't mean be slow to transition from a state of non-anger to a state of anger. That's impossible. That's going to happen like that. The understanding here is more, once you have been awakened to a state of anger, be slow to conclude that what you're feeling is right and good. Be slow to conclude that what you're feeling is right and good. Because sometimes, look, there is such a thing as righteous anger, is there not? Ephesians 4, right? Be angry and do not sin. 
it's possible to have righteous anger. What James is saying here, be slow to conclude that yours is. <laughs> Just take, take your time. It may not be. Take a pause. Okay? Because look... When you're actually in the thick of it, right? I was just talking to a parent after the first service, and she's saying, when you're in the thick of it, it just always feels like you're right. <laughs> like when you're really angry, it feels like every single part of it, every single intensity of it, every single, it's right. It's right for you to feel like that, and there's just no way, you know, and you're just angry. As a parent, I, I get it. You feel that. What James is saying here, I know, I know it feels like that, but hold on, hold on. Take your time. Don't too quickly jump to that conclusion. Instead, he says in verse 19, do what? Be quick to hear and slow to speak, meaning take a breather. Take a breather. Ponder, listen, be curious. Don't just start saying and concluding things. Be slow to that. Just to be clear again, James is not telling you to deny the anger. If you have been awakened to a state of anger, don't deny it. Don't convince yourself that you're above it. Accept the fact that you've been awakened to it. But at the same time, don't just let it out without thinking. Don't just explode and blabber everywhere as if you're the right one. Be curious as to why it is you feel the way you feel. Why do you feel the intensity to the level that you feel it? <coughs> Sorry. <coughs> In other words, James here is not promoting timid self-suppression, nor is he promoting untamed self-expression. He's not promoting timid self-suppression or, or, or untamed self-expression. He is instead commanding rigorous self-examination, self-introspection. Look, if you keep denying that you feel it, you'll never be able to get to the root of the problem. When you go to the doctor, what do they do? What do they ask you for? They first ask you about the, the symptoms, right? Where does it hurt? How does it hurt? How badly does it hurt? If I do this, does it hurt? If I do that, does it hurt? In other words, the first thing the doctor asks is, what are you feeling? That's why counselors ask that a lot in the beginning. They're trying to find the symptom. What's going on? What are you feeling? Where's, where's the problem? In other words, the doctor's job is not to numb the pain, but to treat the wound that he will be led to if he listens to the pain, the root issue, right? A lot of people use God's word as a numbing medicine. You know, Jesus died for you and forgave you, you know, so if you're angry at somebody else, just don't, you know, never do that or don't feel that or, and you just kind of numb it. They use it like a painkiller. James here is telling the Christian, look, if something happens to where you're awakened to a state of anger, is that sinful? Maybe. Is that righteous? I don't know. It could be a mixture. Just don't deny it. You're not above it. It happened. <laughs> it happened. You're not above it. It upset you. It made you feel insecure, whatever it may be. Acknowledge it. Admit that you feel it. But also, don't just explode everywhere, right? Just don't express, express, express. Instead, figure out the deeper sin issues that need to be addressed. Then when you find that, you apply God's word to that. Don't timidly self-suppress. Don't wildly self-express. Rigorously self-introspect. You know why there's a lot of infighting in the church? You know why there's a lot of division? It's because when something happens that awakens us to a state of anger, we're either too busy self-suppressing it, which leads to silent resentment. 
or we're too busy self-expressing it, which leads to hostile uh, enmity. Here's another way to handle it. James is saying, don't be self-introspective. Don't suppress. Don't just express all everywhere. Figure out why do I feel it, okay? And, and if you do so, it won't lead to silent resentment. It won't lead to harsh hostility, but it will lead, in verse 20, to what? To righteousness. When your anger is splitting your chest open, pause, James says. Take a look-see into your heart. You'll have a clearer view of it that you might not have had otherwise. When someone at church gossips about you, you know, is every single part of your anger justifiable? Maybe. Maybe. It's fine for you to feel that. Or is some of it fueled by an idolatrous desire to micromanage your social image? I don't know. It could be. When someone rebukes you of a sin and you get angry about it because the way he rebuked you was insensitive, is it justifiable? Maybe. But maybe some of it is birthed out of a defensiveness because usually the sins that you're most defensive about are the ones that are dearest to your heart. Could that be the cause of your anger? Maybe. I don't know. Be self-introspective. Or if you're the one that's angry at somebody else, right, and you rebuke them for their sin, is every single part of that anger justifiable? Maybe. But if you take a look-see, perhaps some of it is birthed out of a sense of self-righteousness, an unawareness that you too are sinful. Maybe. I don't know. James is saying, be curious. Be slow to conclude your anger is right. There are usually deeper issues at play that intensify the anger, right? Don't so quickly conclude all of it is justifiable. These are opportunities to grow in righteousness, verse 20 says. These are opportunities to put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness in your own heart, verse 21 says. These are precious opportunities. And look, James continues in our passage in verse 21. Look, you can be brutally honest about it. It's okay. Don't be scared as what you might see. Look at verse 21. Put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness. Now look at the next phrase. And receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. What does that mean? The phrase word there that is able to save your souls is is the word of salvation. It's your salvation without getting too much into that detail. Okay. God is saying the word of salvation has been implanted in you. So... Be brutally honest about what you see. Put away all, all filth and rampant wickedness. Why? Not so that the word of salvation will be implanted in you, but because it already has been implanted in you. James is reminding his readers here, look, God is not some person you got to impress with your moral purity and beauty before he decides to save you. He already knows all your impurities. He already knows all your wickedness and filth. But yet, even then, he has implanted the word of salvation in you. He's accepted you, even knowing all your flaws. So then, go ahead. Go at it. Be brutally honest about what you see. When what you see surprises you, it doesn't surprise God. Even if what you see might make you hate yourself, it won't make God love you any less if he's implanted his word of salvation in you. He's accepted you first. The word has been implanted in you first. So now, self-introspect. Don't be scared. Repent. Put away all filth. Acknowledge there's still wickedness in there and grow in righteousness. 
Okay, so if in verses 19 to 21, we've seen what we're called to do, rigorous self-introspection, right? And now verses 22 to 25, we see how it's possible to do it. Because you can't do rigorous self-introspection unless there's a normative standard of right and wrong that you're comparing yourself to, right? What is this normative standard of beauty that you're comparing yourself to? It can't be you, because if you are the normative standard of right and wrong, then you're never wrong. You're always right. That doesn't produce righteousness. That produces narcissism. Okay? So if I'm not always right... Where then do I find this ultimate standard? Is it in other people? Is it in what the collective society says? Is it in what my friends say? Is it what my parents say? My family says? Who gets to hold the mirror? This is where we go to our second point. Reflective Bible adoration. Okay, let's go to verse 22 to 23. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror, for he looks at himself and goes away, and at once forgets what he is like. So, what is James saying the mirror here should be? It's the Bible, right? The Word of God. That is the standard you are supposed to use to work with as you self-introspect. The Bible here is described as a mirror. Okay, you ever seen yourself in a mirror that's like extra, extra, extra clear, and then you go, oh my, i got to work on that. It's just me. I hope it's all of us here, right? We see something like, wow, I need a change, right? This is what God's word is supposed to do. Look at verse 23. It says that it shows you your what? Your natural face. Natural face there literally translates to your true existence, your true being right? The warts and all, things that you might not even want to see often. It shows you that, okay? You're thinking now, this was expected, right? I come to church, pastor is preaching. Of course, he's going to somehow bring me back to reading the Bible. It's always going to be reading the Bible, and I have to see how sinful I am compared to the Bible, and then I have to like work my way up to get to not being sinful anymore. That's expected. And I know that you know that. And I don't think your problem is that you don't know how sinful you are compared to the Bible, or that's not my problem either. You know what our problem is? Our problem is that we rarely follow through on actual repentance. We're, we're satisfied with being aware of the problem, and we think that just because we're aware of it, it's fixed. It's not. There's work that needs to be done, but we don't follow through with that. But why? Why don't we follow through with the flaws we see in ourselves after reading the Bible? There's actually many reasons why, and I actually have to delete a lot of my notes because I wanted to tell all of them to you, but let's just get specific to the one reason out of the many, the one reason that James here is addressing of why it is when we see our flaws in comparison to the Bible, we're usually not led to quick action and and, and repentance. Verse 24, this is the problem, this is our problem, for he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. What's the problem? The problem is our forgetfulness. But forgetfulness here is not like just a head thing. You know, it's not like, oh, whoops, I forget that I was selfish. It's not, it's not like a head thing you forgot. The focus here is that there is a lack of urgency that you have in your heart because we usually don't forget the things we find to be urgent. You remember those things, right? Your wedding date for some reason. 
or other important things. We usually forget the things that we don't find to be important. That's the issue. We don't, we don't see this flaw as, as life-threatening. We don't see these flaws as urgent, as something we need to really take care of. Let me dig one step deeper. Why is it we don't view these flaws as urgent? Why is it we tend to shove it to the side? Because, verse 25, because we do not believe that God's law is perfect and liberating. Verse 25 says, the one who does the word is the one who views the law as perfect and liberating. But we don't do that. The forgetful hearer in verse 24 is contrasted with the obedient doer in verse 25. And the main difference between these two people is that the obedient doer, he looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, verse 25 says. He knows this God's word is perfect and it's liberating. The reason why we don't feel urgency to adjust ourselves to God's word or even sometimes find a rebelliousness to, to obey it and to repent is because we do not find God's word to be perfect and liberating. We instead find God's word to be imperfect and imprisoning. And it's all interconnected. What do I mean? How so? Well, let me, let me try and explain with this analogy. Just warning you, we're going to get pretty vulnerable here, all right? Because I think we're there, you and I, in our relationship. Have you ever gone to a, a clothing store and you bought some new stuff and you think, oh, you know, I look good in that. And then you go to the changing room and in the changing room, you're midway changing. You glance at their mirror. That, that's always more revealing than it needs to be, I think. But, but you look at their mirror and then you see yourself in the mirror and then you don't quite like what you see. Again, is that just me? I, I hope not. What happens to you internally in these moments? Well, the first thing that happens usually is you start experiencing negative feelings about yourself, right? You know, could lose some weight here, could lose some weight there. I could do something about that cellulite there. You know, I told you, it's going to be vulnerable. Um, you know, I could, I could tone up here, I could fix there. And, and you, start, you start feeling bad about yourself and, and you're thinking, man, I'm failing a particular standard or expectation of beauty. That's why you feel bad about yourself. But then what usually happens next is a small part of you starts to ask the question, but hold on a second. Why am I feeling bad about myself right now? All these pressures about weight loss issues and body image standards, all of these are culturally imposed standards of beauty anyways. They're not some perfect law of beauty. We made it up ourselves. They're imperfect laws of beauty. There's a whole Indonesian movie just made based on this premise, right? Imperfect. It's saying, just be done with these imperfect standards, culturally man-made and, and, and put, you know? And, and you start to think, that's right, you know? Why should I let these imperfect, man-made, flawed standards of beauty make me feel bad about myself? And, and if you think that, you would be absolutely right. You are right. You shouldn't feel bad about that. Those are culturally imposed standards of beauty, that especially, I think, women, especially, I think, in Asian countries, feel way too much burden about. You shouldn't, you shouldn't feel bad about that. It can be very hurtful. Now, here's what I want us to notice. The second you realize these laws about your body image standards are imperfect and culturally imposed, you immediately find them to be imprisoning. Don't you? 
Because they're imperfect, they're imprisoning. Why? Because society made them up. And unless I live up to them, they're not going to accept me? Bump that. <laughs> right? These, these laws aren't liberating. They're imperfect and imprisoning. Here, here's what I'm getting at. It's easy for us to treat God's word like that. For us to mistake God, God's word as imperfect laws of beauty made up by humans and therefore it's imprisoning. God's word, the standards of beauty there is not like the standards, imperfect standards that, that we just talked about. But it's, it's easy to confuse because the feeling is the same, isn't it? Right? We read God's word, there's a mirror, and it's showing us the standard of beauty in which we fail to live up to. It's showing us things that make us feel bad. The feeling of yuckiness may be the same. But it's different in that what if, what if the standards we see in the Bible are not imperfect standards made up by man? But what if these standards are actually perfect laws of beauty? Yes, God uses cultural situations to deliver his word. Yes, God uses human language to write his word, which then implies some kind of cultural infusion in there. Yeah. Yes, God uses human authors to write his word, which then implies they're influenced by, by culture there. Yes. But what if, even despite all that, you have a God that is sovereign enough to stand above all of that and still communicate to you the perfect law of beauty as seen in his word through this human language? through these various authors. What if what we have here in the Bible is actually the perfect standard of beauty as given by him in which beauty finds its origin? And what if what we saw earlier in verse 21, what if he, the lawgiver, unlike our culture and society today, what if the lawgiver, God himself, the utmost beautiful, first has already found me to be righteous because, because he's forgiven me of my sins? What if he, the perfect standard of beauty, has already first accepted me by implanting the word of salvation in me, even with all my sin, and he's embraced me, even though I could not live up to these standards he's given? You see? What if it's perfect and liberating? Then all of a sudden, we won't find God's law to be imperfect and imprisoning, but perfect and liberating because it comes from the utmost beauty who yet loves and accepts me even in all of my ugliness. This is how our culture defines love today. It says, I love you, therefore I'll accept you and your flaws. That's what the culture says. I love you, therefore I accept you and your flaws. That is not what God says. This is what God says. I love and accept you, that's why I want you to heal from your flaws. I love and accept you. That's why I want you to heal from your flaws. He's already accepted you, but he's still giving you standard for you to pursue. It's not imperfect man-made laws that's meant to imprison you in guilt. What if it's perfect and liberating? If you believe the Bible is true and perfect standard of beauty and that it comes from God who loves and accepts you even when you fail to live up to them, then you won't treat the painful revelation of flaws as unnecessarily imprisoning. But you'll treat the painful revelation of flaws as necessary in your path towards liberation and righteousness. That's what God is saying. Now imagine, imagine this kind of Christian. You know, let's summarize here. 
when trials and conflict happens, right, they feel anger and sadness, but yet they're slow to it. They don't deny it. They admit they feel it, but they're slow to it. They don't just lash out at everybody. They pause and they compare themselves, what's going on in here, with the perfect standard of beauty as God has given in his word. And they love it. They find it liberating and they introspect themselves for it before they say anything about it. And they just keep doing that for the rest of their lives. Imagine the growth, the deep growth they'll have. There are some Christians throughout history who's been called and described as physicians of the soul. I think they're these kind of people who don't timidly suppress nor wildly express, but constantly do the rigorous work of self-introspection and take every opportunity, especially the hard and painful ones, to grow in righteousness because they know God's accepted and loved them even when they fail. So they're not scared to open up the casket and see the ugliness inside. These are the kind of Christians that experience deep change, true growth, true maturity. And the result will be a non-hypocritical kind of religiosity, which leads us to our last point. Rigorous self-introspection and reflective Bible adoration kills hypocritical religion. Okay. I think it's fair to say that our passage here ends by showing us the result of the kind of person that you would be if you were to do this, okay? If you were to, throughout your life, constantly self-introspect and align yourself with God's revealed word, what's going to happen is you're going to be this kind of person. And it's a beautiful picture. There's three things I want to point out about this person. One, he or she is gentle in speech. Two, he or she is impartial in their friendship. And three, he or she is holy in conduct. Gentle in speech, impartial in friendship, holy in conduct. James starts off with saying there, if you can't brittle your tongue, all your external religiosities, they're worthless. They count for nothing. What's he trying to say there? He's saying that if you want to see what your heart is made out of, don't just look at the way you spend your money. Don't just look at the way you spend your time. Look at the way you use your words. Let's apply what we just learned, okay? Let's be brutally honest with ourselves here. James is saying, you may believe something about yourself. You may believe that based on your financial giving, based on your time management, and based on your Instagram pictures, that you are a kind, gentle, and gracious person. What he's saying here, and it's brutal, I know, he's saying that your speech is a greater indicator to who you are than your finances, than your time allocations, and yes, even than your Insta stories. <laughs> the way you use your words is a greater indication than anything else you do in life. That means no matter how much money you give to the poor, no matter how well you use your time to serve others, no matter how gracious your external actions may be, if the way you speak to others is harsh and ugly, that means you are harsh and ugly. brutal, I know. But this is what self-introspection feels like. It hurts. It sucks. It's brutal. That's the first thing we see about this person. They're gentle in speech. The second thing we see is not only this person is gentle in speech, but also they're impartial in their friendships. Look at verse 27. 
religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction. This is a call to social justice. Yes, absolutely. This is a call for the church to serve those who are less fortunate than them, right? And, and to give to them and to, to be involved in social justice in their city. This is that. But also what it is, it's a call for impartiality in your friendships. Because remember the theme of the rich and the poor, that's going to be thick throughout the book of James. This is a call for the people in the church to not show impartiality in the way they make friends. So James is saying, you want to see a truly righteous person? Here are the final tests. Do they speak kindly and do they include all kinds of people in their friend group? Do they speak kindly and do they include all kinds of people in their friend group? Third thing, gentle in speech, impartial in friendship, and holy in conduct. Okay, look at the end of verse 27. Keep oneself unstained from the world. So they remain faithful to God, no matter the cost. To the, to the word of God, to the Bible, they follow his instructions. They do it even if the culture imposes whatever it wants to impose on them. They stay faithful, they're holy in their conduct. Gentle in speech, impartial in friendship, and holy in conduct. Okay. Now, if you're anything like me, you're probably hearing these things in, in, in uh, the last chunk of our passage, and it's a pretty, pretty clear mirror. And you're probably feeling pretty terrible by yourself right now, just like I am. Right? It's like God is holding a big mirror, not just for us to see in private, but right now in church for all of us to see our own flaws and the flaws of the other person next to us. But remember what this mirror is. It's not a man-made standard of beauty that's meant to imprison you behind bars of guilt. This is actual standards of beauty that God is giving you. And you won't move toward repentance. You won't move toward it unless you hear him first say, I love and accept you. That's why I want you to heal from your flaws. I love and accept you already. And then now you're thinking that, saying, but how can he love and accept me? You're not, are you seeing what I'm seeing, Tazar? Are you seeing what, what you're seeing by yourself? Look at yourself, Tazar. You just put this mirror in front of all of us, and none of us live up to it. Who can live like that? Who can be that pure and that perfect? How can God accept anyone? No one is like this. No one? Someone is. You know how Jesus was described in Isaiah 53? When people were beating him up, when, when people were oppressing him and calling him all kinds of names, when he was afflicted, he did not open his mouth. He was able to bridle, bridle his tongue. He was gentle in speech. You know who he hung out with on his time on earth? The rich aristocrats? No. Tax collectors, fishermen. He ate with prostitutes. And everyone judged him for that. You see? He's impartial in his friendships. You know how the book of Hebrews described him? He was tempted like us in every way by the world, but yet he was without sin. He was gentle in speech. He was impartial in his friendships. And he was holy in his conduct. There was someone who was perfect. There was someone who was beautiful, ultimately beautiful. And you know what happened to this beautiful person? He wasn't accepted by society and put on the cover of a magazine. He was rejected by society and hung on a cross. Why? So that you and I may be accepted by the Father. He kept his mouth shut because we can't keep ours shut. 
He loved you in your worst state, even when you pick and choose who you're friends with. He was holy in his conduct so that you may be made holy by his sacrifice. He was the perfect law of God, the word of God, in human form. He is the ultimate standard of beauty who came not to imprison us, to liberate us. Be sure, Christian, as, as clear as the mirror may be, and as painful as these biblical standards might be, God is not giving them to you because he wants to imprison you in guilt. He's loved and accepted you already. Where? On the cross. Don't you see? You're forgiven. You're free now. It's finished. To do what? You're free to rigorously self-introspect yourself. Don't be scared or defensive as if to what you might see. It's been paid for on the cross. You're accepted. This is how you're going to be able to grow to becoming a person who is more and more like Christ. If you don't have your gloves up, trying to fight every single standard he gives you that you see you don't live up to, it's okay. You don't live up to it. Big deal. <laughs> you're accepted. You're loved. So now grow in it. Can you imagine? Can you imagine the state of the Big C Church if it's filled with people like this? With people who are gentle in speech, impartial in friendship, and holy in conduct. Wow. You want the church to be like this? Then let it start with you. Start with you. Be slow to anger. Don't just quickly conclude every anger you feel is justifiable. Be slow to that conclusion. Be self-introspective. And look at yourself based upon the standards of God's liberating and perfect word. And grow to become that under the foundation of knowing that you have first been accepted and loved by him, even if you fail. Go now. Do that. It starts with you. Let's pray. Father, we ask you now to forgive us that we have often treated your commands in the Bible as imperfect and as imprisoning. But Father, help us treat it as perfect, coming from the origin of beauty itself, you. This is what beautiful looks like. And it doesn't look like a magazine cover. It looks like Jesus. And yet we fail to live up to that beauty. That is why Jesus, who was ultimately beautiful, went on a cross and died, shouted ugly names toward him so that we may be made beautiful from his death, be made righteous when he became a curse for us and come to life when he died to be liberated because he was captured. Help us know we are loved and accepted through this cross and let that love and acceptance give us the power to propel us towards rigorous self-introspection to now be able to be brave and courageous to look at ourselves from the mirror you've given us and say, yes, I need to repent of this and I'll be less defensive about it. And I'll grow, I'll grow. Not for the sake of self-improvement, no, for the sake of your glory. So that your church, whether this local church or the Big C Church as a whole, may display a love that makes no sense to this world, a love that loves even their enemies, and by doing so, magnify your name and give glory to you, the one who loved them, your enemies, and died for them. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.